just a question as we approach these texts in the scriptures. You well know, two weeks ago, I preached out of Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. My goal then was to explain those texts. My goal and burden this morning is to illustrate them from the scripture. And I think for our benefit, just a question about your life. Do you believe it's a bunch of random acts and choices and experiences? Do you believe that history itself might well be that also? Do you believe there's really no rhyme or reason for the things that occur? And therefore, in your personal life, you see no need to be careful with the things you think or choose or do. You don't see any benefit in it anyway. So there's two things of which my goal is this morning. One, for you who love Christ, know this, that the things of which you do can be and are and shall evermore be designed into His system. The Bible's clear about that your choices have consequences and they can be so beneficial not only to you, but as you'll see this morning, to the nation of which you're a part, to the family of which you're a member, to you individually and the church in which you serve. It's so important to understand that. And for you who are unbelievers, know this as well, that the choices you make are huge in implications for your own personal life and existence. You will eat the fruit of your own doings, according to the Scripture. You see, the God who works everything after the counsel of His own will has in history demonstrated over and over again that nothing indeed is random. Let me read this statement by those who would embrace an evolutionary principle for our existence. And though we're Christians and believe that God created the world, we believe Genesis 1. We believe all the Scriptures that speak that He created all things for His own glory. And yet often we find in this understanding of morality and our own personal choices that there's a disconnect. And then sadly sometimes we might even come to the conclusion that grace can erase the teachings of Proverbs and other parts of the Scripture. And so my goal is that you would understand that in grace is no enemy to consequences. Far be it from it, they're friends. They're both from the fountain of God. And it's this I long for you today to see. Listen to those who would have an evolutionary view of things. Our purposeless universe has become infused with local pockets of purpose. And this has happened through entirely natural, spontaneous processes. Purpose emerged in the universe with life itself. Purpose and meaning and morality too can be entirely explained as natural phenomena emergent from a random material universe. Wow! What a word salad that says nothing. And though we as Christians laugh at this thing, and we certainly should, and it is indeed funny, in our own lives, are we not sometimes caught, trapped by this type of thing? You said in your science class in high school, this is probably what they taught you. 
How then can we understand the passages of which we just read apart from knowing that this God that we serve has given us this responsibility in this life? History is not indeed a random collection of things that simply happen with no rhyme or reason. No, no. The Bible's clear about it, and I want you to be clear about it. Your life is no random collection of events that have no meaning or anchor to reality. No, no, not at all. Neither is your family, nor this church and the way in which it goes forward. None of this is so. Here's our struggle with this all. We try to save God from things like the Holocaust. From the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. From autism. From the bubonic plague. From plane wrecks and car wrecks. God doesn't want you to save Him from those things, friend. Not at all. He wants you to understand them in light of the Scripture. And when you do, He wants you to bow your knee and worship Him in the beauty of His holiness. And in your own life, when you see the beauty of even in history of a thing like Greece or Rome in their days as they built roads and allowed travel and of England and the way in which they spread some things that were healthy and helpful to other nations. And when you look at this country and its freedoms, these things as well, God's goodness, not only His severity can be explained or seen in the things of which we watch around us. So then, what do we see here in Romans 11? And here's my purpose in this. Two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that a man sows things and then he reaps them. That's you and me. That's everybody in the world. They live their life. They make choices and decisions. And they reap the consequences of them. That's personal responsibility. And the Bible's clear about it. And you're in the midst of it. You're piling up things in your own life. Consequences of your own choices. It's a fact. To deny it is to deny reality. So within, in chapter 11, Paul saw in the dealings with the Jews that God did this amazing thing. When you read starting in chapter 9 and verse 6, all the way through the end of chapter 11, you see that God has done amazing things, opening up the opportunity for you and I as a Gentile. And Paul sees in that God's goodness to us. And at the same time, he sees that the Jew who had rejected their Messiah and cast him aside, some things that came on that nation in the way of judgment. And what Paul saw in that was God's severity. That word means a cutting off, a judgment. And he asked those who were his readers to do this, Behold, look and see. Some translations might have this. Take note. You see, the challenge for us this morning is sometimes we like to see the things that are good. We like that. Naturally so. We gravitate to that. But the Bible says we have to look at God in His totality in order that we might be warned, we might walk faithful, and consider carefully. 
So the first thing I want you to do with this thought is come with me to understand this law of consequences illustrated in nations. Why in the world is this even important to you? You view yourself as having little to do with the nation of which you're a part. Well, I think you need to reconsider that. It's important according to the Scripture. It's very important. You're a part of a nation. You're a part of a city, a province. We need to give thought to that. If you today were in the middle of Russia or Ukraine, you might well think different. If you were in Myanmar, you might well consider differently. As you watch the atrocities committed against folks, little bodies broken and destroyed with bombs, Men enlisting 11-year-old boys and teaching them how to kill. This, my friend, is what goes on and has. From the fall forward around the world, and you, you and I have to look at these things and consider them carefully. And so, we, we're going to use two different groups of people. First is the Canaanite nation. Now, many of you have read in the Bible, in the book of Joshua, how that God commanded the Israelite people to go into Canaan and destroy everything that walked, wiggled, and crawled. Your soul recoils at such a thought as that. How would you like to be given that command? Take your sword and go to that nation. And when you go into that city, don't you dare leave anything. We flee from these texts of Scripture. But you see, you can never understand Joshua until in Genesis 9 you realize that on the day Ham looked at Noah and that nation was cursed. And when Abraham walked through the land and God had made him a promise in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. And it was there we come to understand not only God's goodness, certainly so in abundance to this nation, this Canaanite nation, but we also see the severity in it. And we understand that there are consequences that came over a long period of time that in Joshua we see worked out. I want to share that with you. So Abraham, as we well know, called out by God, the father of the nation of Israel, walked through the land of Canaan when he left the Chaldean area. And the Bible said right as he was coming into a, an agreement with God about the promise of being a nation. God had promised him this land. And he made this statement that we must all understand as we understand God's design in nations. As he looked around at the Amorite land, God told him this, their sins are not yet complete. What did he mean? They had existed for hundreds of years. And listen to this, would exist for several hundred years more. What had occurred in that land as they had moved away from and saw no benefit of the true worship of God. And so their culture and their land was built on abominable practices. And so how is it that God measures nations? How is it as you look around at the world and watch what goes on and you live in your own, you ought to take note 
It's this that God considers important as we consider nations. Their sin was not yet complete, but there was coming a day when it would be. And we look at the nations of the world, the Babylons and the Assyrians and the Israel and Judah. I could have used any of these illustrations. Or Egypt. And so our own nation, America. In the same way, you're not being a part of it. It's important that we be salt and light. The fact is that you see that the Bible declares concerning nations that God views them in this way. When their sin is complete, their judgment is certain. Deuteronomy 20.18 says of the nation of Canaan that they were wicked, abominable, a word used to describe horrible things sexually Murderous folks and people. And this then was the promise that God had given to Abraham. The land would become that of the nation only when the sins of the Amorites had reached their completion. The weight of sin builds. They sow and they reap. Their basket is full of corruption. A cosmos of that, a small speck, so that we could understand just what this nation was headed toward and that we can see God's demonstration of that was Sodom, right? It was a city in Canaan. And when the opportunity came for Lot to choose where he might live and raise his family and farm and raise his animals, he looked over the plain and he saw a place that looked really nice. And most of you that know your Bible know the story. So he chose that place and he went to that location. And you remember the day came when Abraham had an opportunity to plead with God. And he did, he pled with God. Why do you think when he saw the Lord and he recognized Him and he saw these two men with him, he had an understanding of why he was there. After they'd revealed to him their purpose. The outcry against Sodom has grown great. I'm going to go and see what's in the land. Abraham said, Oh, Lord, if there's 50 righteous, will you spare it? He said, Yeah, I will. He got all the way down to 10. And he left off the conversation. We see as they entered that city, those two men who were angels, Lot sitting at the gate, he was an advisor, a political leader, a judge, whatever you want to call it. There he sat. He well knew when those two men who were strangers came to that town what was going to occur. Much like what would occur in some of our big cities if you were to show up at night. Those men would be violated and destroyed. And Lot being the man he was, still with the understanding that Peter understood, a righteous man who'd vexed his soul among the wicked. He took those men in and set them in his own house. And we remember the story, the horrible thing that transpired as we see men the Bible describes as both old and young, full of passion and wickedness, homosexuality that had gripped their soul. They wanted those men at all costs. 
at all cost. I cannot imagine the thought that Lot had in his heart as he watched those men press against his own door and he said, I've got two daughters, I'll give them to you. For in his choice to put his tent beside Sodom brought him to the place where he was willing to say, here's my two daughters. If you think that can't happen to you or I, you are entirely wrong. Take heed he that standeth, lest he fall. It was there that we see this scene unfold where these men wouldn't have it any other way. They wanted what was not theirs. They wanted what was not appropriate. They didn't care who said what. Have you seen that lately? They want to take children in this country and turn them into what they're not. At all cost. If you think they'll stop at your door, you're wrong. If you think they'll take the offering of something that appears to be in some sense right, at least a man and a woman together is normal. Outside of marriage, it's wrong. But it's normal. What do we see Romans 2 say when this comes, this abnormality overtakes a society? God has illustrated it in the pages of His Bible and history. When this comes, you see what occurs. And so it was, we see in this moment, God's severity. As He brings on this people fire and brimstone in their illicit passions, God brings judgment. But don't we see His goodness as He pleads with Lot, though Lot hangs around longer than he should. And He's allowed His family to be immersed in such a thing that His own son-in-laws make fun of it. And as he carries his own wife out, she looks back. Because though her feet are outside of Sodom, her heart is still in it. But he rescues Lot. What a blessing. can we say that? Listen, friends. The very thing of which Christ told these women as they lamented for Him as He walked to Calvary's cross is something that ought to find its place in our heart, in our ears, you see. What can we do with something like this? I'm not in Sodom. I'm not a Canaanite. You see, it's always another nation, isn't it? It's always another place, isn't it? Until it's not. <clears throat> the words of Christ to those lamenting women who at, in every way were there and to be admired by us and looked up to as they wept for Christ, His broken and bruised and shattered body walking along that road carrying His cross. He looked at them and said, Don't weep for me, weep for yourself. How could a man in that situation say such a thing? 
And here's my question. Would they even remember it anyway? You see, what he was preparing them for would be near 40 years later. His point was, when you see this occur, when you watch an innocent man carrying a cross, when they've connived together, not only the Romans, but his own people, to put him to death. His words to them was this, what will they do to you? If they'll do this when the wood's green, what will happen when the wood's dried out? What was he talking about? He was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he gave them counsel in the book of Luke there in the last days of his life when he said, when you see this city surrounded, don't you dare run into it. You run to the hills. Wow. That's spiritual, right? Certainly it is. He's illustrating the consequences that occur in the life of nations. Don't you dare what you do what you normally would, come to the city for protection. God has considered its days and judgment is cast upon it. The very thing Paul spoke of in Romans 11 and verse 22. You see, friend, this occurs. You live in a nation, you must be thoughtful about it. What am I trying to say? That you should gather up food or what? That's not what I'm saying. Don't be surprised as God unfolds the things in any nation that are consequences to its choices. As you watch choices unfold, be wise. Christ said, look at the fig tree. And when it leaves, it's getting ready to produce its fruit. And He tells us the same. It's important, brothers and sisters, to look at history and to read its pages and to read your Bible and see in both these things God's amazing Kindness and grace and mercy and justice. Both His severity and His kindness and goodness. It's abundant. And not to cause you not to desire evil of any sort. But notice next, the law of consequences illustrated in families. And I could have chosen many families. I could have chosen the family of King Saul. The family of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, whose son was named Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. What a name for a man who went through his life understanding why he lost his father and his granddad fell off a stool and broke his neck. I could use Achan who stole a couple of things and cost his family their life. I could use many folks. I could use me or you. But King David serves for two purposes an important illustration. One, he'll do, we can from it see the general principle. And the second thing, we can see more specific application of the consequences of forgiven sin. Are there yet remaining consequences at time for sins that are forgiven? What do you think about that? It's important to you. You see, it's real important to you. In 2 Samuel, we have the account starting in chapter 11 and onward of David's sin with Bathsheba, which is a very familiar text to all of us. When David's supposing to be on his campaigns in war, stayed back and looked over and made an unbelievably horrible choice. Adultery, murder, lying, deception. Here's the question we ought to ask. If the coach 
of the Chicago Bulls one day, looked out his door and watched Michael Jordan rob a bank. What would he do? Well, if he wanted to win NBA championships, he'd act like it didn't happen. What would God do when, so to speak, the superstar of the nation, the one that they said, Saul has killed his thousands, David is ten thousands, the one who stood in boldness and slayed the giant, Goliath. The one who had led the armies of Israel to conquer the lands of which they had never known before. What would God do? Certainly David was a man who experienced grace. Would it be in this moment that God would simply in an indifference look over David's sin? The Bible says in 2 Samuel 11 and 27, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So we see in this situation, David's sin not only affected David, but its aftershocks were greater and wide-reaching, far more than he ever understood would be. Is this not the reality of sin? No man is an island to himself. No man ought to think or say, my sin just affects me. Brothers and sisters, that is out of the pit of hell and it's not right. And if in any moment you try to justify yours by saying that, no, it's not going good for you. And so it is the faithful prophet Nathan as he comes to the man David, a man who bore the sword, who had killed many, who even by God, when David longed to build him a tabernacle, God said, no, you're a man of blood. You've killed far too many people. You think it was a little thing for Nathan to go to him with this thing? I don't think so. But he did faithfully go to David. And in those moments, he told a story of what you remember about the little ewe lambs. And David, in his anger, said, Find that man, let's kill him. That was his answer, wasn't it? Let's find him. Let's kill him. Boy, that's us in our sin, isn't it? <laughs> we want to find the other guy and kill him. Isn't that right? It is, isn't it? And he looks at David and says, you're the man. You're the man. Now I think here it's only fitting to say some things about David that are so helpful to you and me because you see there could come a day where your pastor or preacher or your friend or your neighbor comes to you and tells you a story and he has to say to you, you're the man! What will you do? Kill the messenger? That's what most do. But you see, we see the goodness here and the severity of the Lord both in both ways and it causes us to get on our knees and worship. David done things that have deserved death. Certainly so. According to the law, he should die. But I want you to hear. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10-14, through 14, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can simply hear as I read. Second, cha Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. 
And now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of your eye the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Friends, that verse ought to shake you to the bottom of your boots for two reasons. God is just and God is gracious. And He's not more one or the other. He's the same and always has been and will be. And He's worthy of our worship. Is He not? And so we see the promise that the sword would never leave the house of David. And friend, it did not. Because the remaining of that book in 2 Samuel is about this. Ammon raping his sister Tamar, his half-sister. Absalom killing his half-brother. Tamar, or Amnon. Absalom's conspiring to steal the throne and being successful. Ahithophel, one of David's favored advisors, turning his back on him and siding up with Absalom. And then Absalom dying with three swords through his heart and butchered till he's dead. Shimei cursing David and making a mockery of him. Friend, the sword didn't leave his house. But God has put his sins away. Wow. Wow! What should modern day Christianity take from that? It's good to beat your body and bring it under subjection. It's good to do what you must to keep yourself from sin. What Christ said is important. If you've got to cut off your hand, cut it off. If you've got to pluck out your eyes, pluck them out. I'm certain David, as he looked back over his life, and when the sword never left his house, I'm certain he would with you and me say, my hand's gone and my eyes poked out. It would have been well worth it. What about for you and for me? It's a warning, isn't it? That's the point. So to the flesh and you will reap corruption. So to the Spirit and you reap life everlasting. God's serious about this thing. It doesn't matter if it's the spiritual hero of Israel. God's serious. Let me leave this portion with this. I think it's so important. Because when you find yourself caught in sin, and certainly those in a church like ours, 
when we find a brother or sister caught there, we're to restore that person in the spirit of meekness. And we ought to always do so. Psalm 51 came from the pen of the adulting, murdering, conspiring David. After he repented and his heart was broken, 2 Samuel 12 and 13 said, I have sinned against the Lord. And as you follow that chapter on through, you find David laying prostrate on the ground, though the promise was the kid would die. Don't you see that David's sin not only cost him, he cost this kid his life. Did David have a problem worshiping a God like that? Not at all. The Bible says, following the information, as he watched his servants there all gathered together, he realized after seven days that child had died. David got up, though he hadn't had a bath, washed his face or ate food for seven days. They thought certainly if he finds out this child died, he'd kill himself. David got up. Did the most amazing thing. He worshipped. He got up and he worshipped. Friend, if you fail your family, do what you must, like David. When asked why he laid there, though God had said, your child's going to die, David laid there thinking, God, maybe, maybe will show mercy. But when the child died, David got up and worshipped the God who had poured out His goodness and put away His sin. Though He faced a life where the sword wouldn't depart from His family, nonetheless, He loved that God. He knew the choices of His own. He was reaping the consequences of them. Right? Is that not a beautiful thing? You can see through that chapter how David's responses indicate a man who loves God in spite of the fact that he was going to experience from the hand of God a severity of which none of you probably have in this life. Beautiful thing indeed. The beautiful reality of this verse in Romans 11 that Paul saw unfold in the life of Israel and the Gentiles. Demonstrated here in families. Friend, your family's worth giving everything up for. You ought not to wait till you look at Bathsheba. Why don't you fast before then? Why don't you do what you must to make certain they have what they need spiritually? This is a warning to all of us, isn't it? Daddy, mommy, your sin doesn't just affect you. Your laziness in raising your children doesn't just affect you. You're handing them over to an educational system that will destroy them and every other thing. Be careful. Take heed. Take heed. God's goodness and severity. What about that law of consequences demonstrated individually? I think it's important. I've chosen these folks for a very important reason. They're a part of the New Testament church. 
I could have chose Judas or Cornelius or Paul. All of them, you see, had experience from the hand of God, blessing or severity that would fit this moment. But I chose another person, Ananias and Sapphira. A married couple. A married couple. In the early church, in chapter 5, we have this story. Kind of a strange event indeed. The church growing, you see, longing for the apostles' teaching and living on the edge of it, sharing their stuff and giving their things away. Well, and then you have this story of these two folks. I don't know what they did for a living. I don't know what they looked like. I don't know how many children they had or how old they were. But this I know. That they concocted a plan in their home one day. Because they loved the praise of men. They wanted to be seen in a particular way among their church-going friends and family. And they sat down together, maybe at their kitchen table, and said, let's do this. We got that piece of property, we're going to sell it, and we'll take it. You know that guy Barnabas? He sold his property and gave it to the church, and everybody loves him. Let's do it. But you know, let's keep half of it for ourselves. That sounds a little... You know, what's a big deal? Why? I tell you, I bet if you could ask him now what that big deal was, it's a big deal. See, this is the way we live our life, isn't it? I do things and I think it ain't no big deal. It might be a whole lot bigger deal than you think. It could well be a bigger deal than you think. You see, the consequences of my choices individually have been illustrated in Scripture over and over again. I'm just pulling one out of its pages. You see, God had even, Peter said this to them, man, look, the property was yours. You could have done with it whatever you wanted. God doesn't need your money or mine. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need Ananias and Sapphira. That was God's goodness. Look, when you sold it, you could have done anything with it. You could have came here and gave the money, not said anything. Just don't say how much it costs. But don't come here and say, oh, I sold my property. This is how much it costs. I gave everything. No, no. No, no, you overstepped a boundary. I don't know where that boundary is for you, brother or sister. I don't know what's going on in your heart right now. I don't know what you're conceiving as sin in your own heart. When you put pictures on Facebook and when you post them everywhere. And I don't know what you're doing. I don't know. Your heart might be pure in the thing. You might want the attention of others. You might long for their praise. You're in a dangerous place, brothers and sisters. You're in a dangerous place. At work. You have access to money. Or you come around your Christian friends and you want to be something you're not. Listen, the Bible's clear. It's dangerous. You'd be better off standing by the wires of a high-powered system than to deal lightly with God on these serious matters. You're talking too much 
to your secretary. You're being too friendly with your boss. I don't know what it might be. It could be any numbers of things. Please, your heart is deceptive and desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Take heed, brothers and sisters. And so we find this Ananias going and telling Paul or Peter, and Peter says, yeah, and he died right there. And you know, I'm always amazed at this story because of this reason. Peter could have saved Sapphire's life. Don't open your mouth, sister. I know what your husband did. That's not what he said. Sapphire walks in and Peter asks him, did you sell that property for so-and-so? What if you were a part of that church? How would you feel about that? What if your pastor did such a thing? And so the hands that buried her husband buried her also. What do we learn from this? That what might seem small to us and insignificant, the proof and praise of men might well be small to us, but it's not small to God. We don't know what things might come to us in this world that draws us away that's small to us but big to God. It's not a small thing to fall under the disciplinary action of this church. There are some who are there. It's not a small thing to be set back out into the world where Satan can have his way with you. It's not a small thing not to be part of a body of Christ where you're protected and encouraged and carried along. Oh, these things are so important, brother and sister. Is not 1 Corinthians 11 true? Is it not true across the country today? We think, well, that was in the Bible. What we can't say about this story is, well, that was Old Testament. No, no. That was New Testament. Now, the next person's going to say, well, the Bible wasn't complete yet. Friend, friend. What? So 1 Corinthians 11 says concerning the church at Corinth, some of the people in the church were sick and dead. Why? Because they came to the table in an unworthy manner. Do you not think, brothers and sisters, many are missing from the fellowship of the churches across America because of that same reason? I would be a fool to think otherwise. God's serious. You and I ought to be too. Let's leave it at that. There's many other things that could be said. But listen, the law of consequences illustrated in the life of individuals are clear. Take up your Bible and see them number of times over and over again. What about in the life of the churches? I'll move quickly here. It's clear in Revelations 2 and 3, Christ has chosen to walk through the midst of His churches. Illustrated by the fact that He walks through the candlesticks. And He addresses them clearly. What is it that we ought to think about that? You see, Christ is walking through His churches all the time. They're His. And as you'll note in those passages, most of of them were upbraided for something in their particular situation. The one who got the greatest criticism was Laodicea. And he said, I'm going to... It wasn't there, but one of the other churches, I'm going to come and remove your candlestick. The whole point of the passage is... If you don't straighten these things out, the consequences of your choices, thinking you're rich, thinking you've got it all together, Laodicea, 
thinking you don't need anything. The consequence of that way of thinking or choice is you could well be snuffed out as a church, altogether gone. Wow, look at the different denominations across the world who started right and ended wrong. Right? What makes you think this church will go on? It's because you make good decisions. It's because you love Christ. You realize what you do in the private will be hollered from the mountaintops. So you're careful with your life. You love your worship. You come and pray. These things are important, brother and sister. It's critical the way we think. Goodness, see, one church, Sardis, it says you have a name that you're alive. But what did God say about them? What did Christ say? You're dead. You know, it's not so important what the world says about this church. It's more important what Christ says about it. Right? And the things in the pages of the book are so important. God's blessing on His people are numerous. We can see on and on and on again. God's goodness demonstrated in the pages of the Bible to those in His church. The thing we also have to remember and we have to hold in balance and tension is that also in the Scripture is God's severity or His cutting off, His judgment on those in His church who take little concern about what this is all about. We've been entrusted with the Gospel. We better handle it carefully. Because if we give it up, God has no use for us. We might as well be the Lions Club. Right? They do good things. They're not given the gospel as a charge. Lastly, let me say this. Those are the four things. But I think this demonstrates above all others. God's goodness and His severity. We've seen it in nations. We've seen it in families. We've seen it in individuals. We've seen it in the life of the church. But friend, you'll get no better picture of it than this place. When you hear from Calvary's mountain this cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You will never see another moment in history when God demonstrates His severity. When one is cut off like this, you'll never see it. You'll never see a moment again. When God demonstrates such a thing as this, when He who knew no sin became sin. I cannot fathom those hours of that day when Christ only the time in all eternity for those few Short hours separated from His Father. Experienced from the cup of His wrath every single drop. I tell you, that was severity beyond imagination. It was occurring on display. God placarded it like a billboard on the side of Golgotha's hill. It was there that you see, friend, God's design to crush His Son.
And then you see from it flowing life everlasting for multitudes that no man can number. You see them singing around the throne in Revelation. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. The goodness of God demonstrated in the lives of a multitude which no man could count or number greater than the sands of the sea given to His Son because of His work. Friend, those were consequences that came to you and me because of Him. You ought to delight in the law of consequences if you're a Christian. Right now you've become the righteousness of God in Him because He became sin for you. What He did on your behalf and mine now flows to us in the way of a consequence that is everlasting and beyond measure. So as we close this up and see most clearly demonstrated this grand truth that God has demonstrated for us, how the beauty of this passage in Romans 11, 22, seeing displayed in Scripture comes to its culmination at Calvary and awaits its final moment when Christ comes to gather up His people. When His kindness and goodness will continue on display for all eternity. You're here and you're an unbeliever. How can you pass up such an offer? You're here and you're taking a little thought of your life and you're a Christian. How can you keep doing so? How can you live with, un, with a heart full of the love of this world when your Savior died like that for you? How can you live spending more time knowing other things than Him? You see, we see displayed here such a severity and such a kindness. Will you, unbeliever, trust Christ today? The Bible invites you. There's nothing stopping you but your own sin and desire to love the world. Will you, Christian friend, take up the cause and understand the reality that God's designed into His system grace and abundance and consequences as you live out your life, your own personal choices. Sowing and reaping is a reality. I pray, Christian brother and sister, that you'll be committed from this day forward to consider this in every way and benefit from it and lay your treasures in heaven where moth and rust doth corrupt and no one ever breaks in and steals for where your, note this, treasure is. There your heart will be also. You see, you struggle because your treasure's here. You struggle longing for there because you put your treasure in the wrong place. Please, please, I beg you. Whatever you give to God will be multiplied in abundance. It's worth giving everything for. Will you do it today? Will you? Let's pray. Father, we love You. We thank You so for the Gospel, for Christ. Lord, we thank You that You've shown us Your severity and You've shown us Your goodness. 
You are perfect in all things. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments. How inscrutable your ways. You are perfect in all things. We love you. Save sinners. Restore and revive your people. Give us a heart to love you more. In Christ we pray. And together God's people say